genre. What up, nerds, and welcome to Tales from the Short Box. My name is Adam Sheehan, and I'm here today with your usual crew of pals, Sean Petit. What's going on? Casey Crawford. Hello. And RJ Vite. Hello. And we're joined today with a very special guest, best-selling author and illustrator, Brian Box Brown. Hello. Yay. Hello. Yay. Hello. Thanks for joining applause. us. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... You just had a, a, a new book released recently, um, Child Star. We read it. We talked about it on the show. We all loved it. Oh, that's good. Um, you've also written a, a bunch of other stuff like Is This Guy For Real? The Andy Kaufman Story, Tetris, Andre the Giant Story. A lot of great stuff. Um, I, guess, I, I guess what's kind of on the, on the front of our minds right now with having just put out a book, what is that like during these times where like no one can meet in person you can't do yeah. i kind of um well it's weird because like in a strange way it's kind of like great <laughs> like <laughs> because like the book tour is so stressful and like um it's hard to like talk about your work and like entertain people it's like a whole other skill that like cartoonists it's i, I mean I, just speaking personally, it doesn't like come naturally to me to like go talk about the book mm-hmm. a bunch. Um, and like, it's, it's exciting and fun to travel a lot like that, but also like you miss home and stuff. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of days in a row getting up really early and getting on a plane. Um, so I don't know. So there's like, I don't have to do that stuff. Um, but also it's like hard to, to like generate, to make it feel exciting, I guess, when the book coming out. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I, I imagine most um, creators have a hard time being their own hype man. Yeah. Like that's, that's a completely <laughs> different skill set. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if this was pro wrestling, I would, I would get like a manager. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. You get a manager and you need that hype guy and to always yeah, be yeah. there to just Someone kind to like of... like trash for me. Exactly, like, yeah. yeah. They you need a just... heel to make, uh, to say that your book sucks and then generate <laughs> that whole... <laughs> yeah, you need, a, you need a Bobby Heenan. Yeah, exactly. That's what I need, Bobby. Bobby the Brave. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, um, the other question we had about Child Star is this is kind of in a way, one of the, the first big book works of fiction that you've done in a while. Um, yeah. What kind of steered you towards that? Was was there like an idea you started on and then said, wait, I think it would be better if um, I kind of... I, want, I had done all these nonfiction books and I like to take, like after I finished like this big long graphic novel, I often would like, do fiction, like do something short, like a mini comic or like an anthology, something like one time I did like this like lengthy anthology piece. Um, and it kind of like cleanses my palate, I think a little bit and mm-hmm. it's fun. And I think that like when you work on fiction and, and nonfiction together, like it helps, helps you with both because like it helps you to like, 
um, identify what's a good story in nonfiction and uh, like how to tell it kind of um, what do you do when you work on fiction? Right. Um, yeah. It's like, um, like Werner Herzog does like fiction sometimes. And like, I not to compare myself to the great Werner Herzog. But, <laughs> uh, I feel like it's kind of like the same thing. Like it's, it's like you just, it's about telling stories and sometimes it's just like you want to tell whatever fictional story. But also like with this particular thing, there was like so many child stars that I felt like their sad stories had like been told so many times that like, it's like we don't necessarily want to hear another sad, the same sad story and like go over all the bad points of this person's life again. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But also, like, I wanted the freedom to, like, mess around and, like, make a ton of stuff up and, like, <laughs> make jokes and stuff like that. And, well, yeah, and, you, don't have to, you don't have to stress too much on the details because... Yeah, it's just, like, you're just making it up anyway. So, But it was funny when I was making this book, though, because um, I had an editor that had to go back and, like, make a timeline of Owen Eugene's life and, like, <sighs> make sure all his like the ages and stuff worked out like like at one point he was like well i mean he'd be like 24 at this point so like he had figured out when is when all the stuff happened for me which was great i mean mm-hmm. we, we just was able to fudge a few numbers around and make it all work yeah, I mean, it was pretty successful because by the end of it, I was like second guessing my own reality. I'm like, this dude isn't real, right? Like, yeah. it, it's yeah. fully flushed out and feels very authentic, probably because like you can see the notes of like, okay, this is clearly a Gary Coleman thing. This is clearly a Macaulay Culkin thing. And like, you synthesize that all so well that it feels really real. Like, it, it was really impressive. Um, it was like a, fi- a hard line, I felt like, to, to walk. And I, uh, because I didn't want to make it too much Gary Coleman, because there's a lot of Gary Coleman ups and downs in there. Mm-hmm. But it's not Gary Coleman, you know? It's like For a, sure, yeah. Like it's it's like, like distinctly different, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I, there's some... I wish I'd kind of put in more 90s, more like Shia LaBeouf stuff in there mm-hmm. sometimes when I think about it now. Um, but it also, like, I, I was, like, also trying to challenge myself, I think, to make a a comic that well because like i like all these documentaries and documentaries a lot of times are just not necessarily visually interesting because it's some of my favorite documentaries are like first person interviews and it's like a lot of just people talking about a singular subject um and I wanted to see if I could like make an interesting comic in the same way that a documentary, like vid the a documentary from the visual standpoint of it. Cause like my other books are like documentary comics, but are distinctly comics. And I wanted to kind of like try to use the influence of documentary film in comics more. Yeah, definitely that, that, that definitely comes across. Yeah, like you, yeah. we, we noticed that uh, when we were discussing it on our episode a couple weeks ago where it's like the, all the beats are the same and they're like fly fishing and they're like out on the pier and they're doing all the like ordinary day things that like you know the interviewees usually are in a documentary there were a couple points where like I even heard 
the like documentary like voiceover yeah or not not even necessarily the voiceover like what you know transition music would play right there like the visual cues were so spot on for that documentary style like that was that that came across really well i realized some of the stuff like like they make like why would you interview somebody like fly fishing right (laughs) Right. (laughs) it makes sense but like you need to do stuff like that to make to add visual appeal Mm -hmm. to it so like i did I kept did like a million things. People being interviewed while doing other things, and yeah. not like sitting there. I really liked when you kept going to the guy when he was just driving, and I was just like, yeah, yeah. that like I really loved that dynamic of talking, like using that documentary style. But like they're just doing things that they wouldn't be doing while being interviewed, and I I, I really loved that part of it. Like yeah, the guy driving, like why is this dude? The one dude's just like swimming. It's like all or right, like riding a bike or throwing yeah. a frisbee, just like all kinds of. Yeah. While also being interviewed for, you know, something. It just, it just seems like, oh, I guess I'll talk to this guy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, um, I thought of it like the people were willing to talk to the, the crew about this, but only if they, like, it didn't interrupt what they were going to do anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and some of the people, like, the characters you created for that, like, it, that's exactly how it felt. And I, I, I feel like that kind of gave you the, it built that world where it kind of felt like kind of how Casey was saying is like, wait, did I watch this show when mm-hmm. I was a kid? Like, is this a real person? <laughs> so it was, yeah, I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with like creating that atmosphere in this uh, right from like the first couple pages. I was like, all right, I'm digging this. This is great. Yeah. It's kind of like, I was thinking it's kind of like based on a few different documentaries. Like uh, mm-hmm. there's one called, I, I, I highly recommend at least this one. The ho- it's called the Hollywood Complex, and it's about a like a, a a apartment complex that is rented out to families with a child actor that they're trying to go to auditions during like pilot season, and so it's like these short rentals, and it's really like a business that is exploiting like child star parents because it's like giving them you know they pay all this money to stay there with all these other child star kids and they get like training singing training and acting training and how to do audition training and all this different stuff and they're like it's like a a thousand you know a thousand but like hundreds of kids all like with the same dream so that was really good and it was kind of kind of that's part of it. And then, of course, like the different strokes, uh, true Hollywood stories <laughs> yeah. from the 90s. And, uh, and uh, there was one more, that, one more that really stood out to me. Uh, is, I, I can't remember it right now. It'll come back to me later. Um, but, but definitely the, ho- the Hollywood complex was it. Really that's, good film. That sounds fascinating and horrifying. Yeah, like. yeah it really is. Like it's like you feel you both like you feel sorry for the kids, but also like they're genuinely. I don't know. It's like it, I, some of the parents are are are, are genuine believers. Mm-hmm. Some and like some are just as like you know are, are just as like snowed as the the kids. 
the parents are, you know. Yeah, they've bought into yeah. this dream yeah. of of Hollywood stardom, and the only way they get there is the kids and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like I think about it. I was thinking about it the other day. So there's a, a, an HBO documentary called Showbiz Kids came out like a week after Child Star. Oh jeez. <laughs> of course it did. That's that Alex Winter. Alex Winter, yeah. Yeah. And it, it touches on a lot of the same themes. Um, uh, obviously, it's a re- oh the other documentary was. It's just a documentary on YouTube about child stars, but it had a lot of uh, child stars from like the 1920s and 30s that are now were now like in their 70s and 80s. Oh wow! So interesting. Um, yeah, it was interesting because the stories were all the same even back then. Wow. Um, yeah, you would have thought that would have been like a modern invention, like yeah, the no, 80s and. No, it was like all the kind of the same. Like, and, and they they interview one of the actresses in in that movie showbiz kids um as well um and and she talks about like how her dad her dad would like slap her to get her to work and they they Jeez. believed at the time that kids like were were not as prone to injury as adults so they would like throw the kid down a hill and, like whatever they like kids are fine they're made of rubber like um uh, you know? no i don't think yeah. that's true um, <laughs> um so yeah so it was like all those things like informed the the book um and a lot of my own experience watching sitcoms um Mm. like part of it a lot was just i wanted to write sitcom humor because it's so like bad (laughs) right (laughs) right right but it's like fun because like (laughs) when you're trying to do something that's bad like it's hard to it's actually hard to do it bad like like exactly it, it, but it also like if it it's this is a bobby bobby the brain heenan thing like if you're trying to be an idiot and you fall down it's fine because you're an idiot so <laughs> like when you're writing sitcom humor if it's not funny or it's stupid that's okay because it's, it's supposed to be dumb <laughs> so, right right it's a very freeing i recommend it to anybody any creative type to like try to do something bad because it's a very freeing experience to like not you're purposely not trying to put a uh any kind of polish or uh like high-minded idea into yeah. it there's no bad ideas at that point it's just yeah it's just yeah. there you go it doesn't yeah. matter if it's good yeah. or bad or whatever yeah uh, it, it takes a lot of the pressure off creatively I liked a lot of the sitcom. Like I like how you inserted that into child star, like all these sitcoms and uh, the, like later on when he's doing, like when he's fallen off uh, out of stardom with like the doing local the cam- commercials yeah. and the cameos yeah. and stuff like that. It really um, like, it really captured that whole vibe, but it, like, it, like it helped build this world about this fictional character. I just met like a hundred pages ago. Yeah. It also puts a, a spotlight on just how silly a catchphrase can be. Because right, right. without oh, yeah. the delivery and the inflection, it's just this line. It's like, well, yeah. that doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. Well, like I, I kind of said it in my head a different way every time. And each yeah. time I was like, no, that's not it. The um, that's that's based on something real. Like when Gary Coleman in the script, it just said, "What are you talking about, Willis?" And, <laughs> um, right. And that wouldn't just, that wouldn't have been as catchy, I imagine. Exactly. Yeah. It's just like the way he said it, it became a catchphrase, and so I don't understand. It's just that. 
it's just how he said it and it yeah, just became so this magical thing the way he said it it was magical yeah and awesome. i like that i like that you didn't describe how he said it so you're left to decide what that inflection was because i'm in my head i'm like oh, i don't understand but i'm like yeah. that sounds dumb i don't yeah. know but yeah yeah i did that on purpose because um there was a i learned this in college like i, I read like so we're, we're reading like something in some literature class or poetry or something and they were like describing like the most the, the most beautiful whatever song it was like a song written by god but they don't tell you what the song is at all because it would immediately shatter that image of the most beautiful thing in, in the world and if, if you didn't think it was the most beautiful thing in the world in actuality it would you know shatter the image so it comes from that like if, if if i made up some inflection of the way he said it it wouldn't be it might not be the catchy way that 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 whatever that people fell in love with it's just the description of that or if you That's say midichlorians yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's like not showing the monster in a scary that's, movie that's what yeah. i was gonna say it's very yeah. lovecraftian of you yeah yeah or like uh like the the murder scene in psycho you don't actually see the woman get stabbed but it happens right. off camera and it's so much more brutal in your head because you didn't actually see it right so how do you how do you typically choose um a topic that you write about like with these these biographies what's what's that kind of decision-making process and then research process like for you um usually it's like i by the time i decide i want to make a book about it i've done like 80 percent of the research already because it's um it's just something that i'm interested in and like i keep digging and digging and digging and next thing i but like not in the idea to make a book about it it's just I have, that's just how I am, I guess. It's just an obsession that gets out of hand and you're like, oh, well, I've already got all these. I already did the work. Got these tabs open on my computer already. Might as well put them to use. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So it's like, by that point, like, you're already there and you kind of, but usually I know when I want to make a book about it, when I'm, when I have told a bunch of the stories to my wife, like, a hundred (laughs) times. She's like, all right, I get it, like. You're repeating yourself now. I'm like, oh, that's this probably would be a book, a book then. Right. Was it harder to research for Child Story because you didn't have a direct focus, like a direct person um, to research? Uh, um, no, I wanted to, I wanted to have a varied, a more varied even, uh, like palette of people to to base it on. Yeah. More free reign. Uh, yeah, but also like that's very like all of that stuff is doesn't never felt like research to me because it was just like watching tv shows yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of like uh you know growing pains different strokes silver spoons was a big one too wow. um, but like even later stuff you know like fresh prince of bel-air uh, family matters uh like all the stuff that that I wanted to kind of revisit and watch anyway, kind of, was just like giving myself an excuse. Like, oh, well, now I gotta watch like five episodes of Family Matters right now. Oh no, <laughs> there you go. 
Yeah. Uh, don't no, bother no, me. No, I, I'm I doing need the research. TV today. Yeah, yeah I'm doing I'm, research. I'm, it's, it's research, hard air quotes. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, but like some, but with with nonfiction stuff, it can be like you you find an idea or like an idea for a, a path you want to take in the story, but then you have to like really go back and do the work and like make sure that it's the truth, you know? And like, right. if this is, like, is there anything that backs up this story that like can like broaden the picture even further without like take, taking too much artistic license with it, you know? Well, that's uh, gotta be real hard with a topic like wrestling because the truth and legend tend to blur together. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, like that's almost impossible. And like, <laughs> I even now like have heard stories from Andre that I'm pretty sure are not true that I just like uh, thought were true maybe and like now it's spread out as fact <laughs> um, right. uh, but that, you know you're trying to do something like that yeah, wrestling is like very hard because there's so much fake well and Andy Kaufman in the same sense yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. B- like dude dude, we're still trying to debate if he's alive or dead you know i think like talking to uh bob zamuda (laughs) like you think that like you know this is like the ultimate source for this type of thing you know what i mean but like when i was talking to him when i finished talking to him i was like all right i'm gonna take everything he said with a grain of salt because like (laughs) you know what i mean like because you're using your own you got to use your own discern just discern what the truth is um not just based on what people tell you whatever because like especially in any kind of entertainment industry like people have an invested interest in like their own legend and um if it's going to get retold they want it retold like their way in a specific way yeah yeah, and they might not even mean to do that. There's just like there's so much legend surrounding. Exactly. I mean, everybody. That particular person. Yeah. Every, I mean, people do it in their own lives, and when they retell their, their story from ten years ago, it it ends up like getting exaggerated and and maybe like mixed up with a bunch of other stuff that happened, and like so everybody's memories are even like fluid as to what's happened. Right. It's very true. I, I know a guy like that. Like, it's like, he'll tell a story. It's like, I know just by the way you're telling it that it never happened this way. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an, an entertaining story and I'll listen anyway. You yeah. Know? Right. I, I worked for a tattooer once that uh, when I started working for him, he'd been in the industry like eight years. And by the time I wasn't working for him a year later, he'd been in the industry for 20 years. It, like every month that like he increased a year. <laughs> Time just moves differently for that guy. I it guess. does, clearly. Yeah, he's on a different plane of existence. <laughs> um, but but speaking of your, um, like specifically your nonfiction, I'm really fascinated by the way that you synthesize that in- information. Like specifically like with Tetris and with um, cannabis, it's like mm-hmm. highly technical, confusing, like bureaucratic and like, business and like all these different you know like like uh, elements that are combined together and you and you tell that story so, so in such a not simple but in in a streamlined way that like that comes across to the reader as as efficient and like 
like genuinely enjoyable. Like you, you think about Tetris, it's all just like business dealings, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, what is your process of doing that synthesize, synthesizing of, of like your research? I think a lot of times I'm like teaching it to myself. Like, um, like in the process of making the comic, I'm like teaching myself about the subject that I'm working on. Um, and it is like challenging, I think. Like when you, you find something, some, some, you know, you get to some crossroads in the story, where am I gonna go? What, what happens? Um, you know, some stuff is so, like especially the cannabis book, some of the old stuff is like so murky, like the old cannabis laws and when was the first one and where did it come from and all that different yeah, stuff. Especially because like, that's global. Like it, a lot of it deals with America, yeah. but at first you're dealing with India and then the UK yeah. and like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, it is, it's hard. I, I wish that I had like more training. Like I, like I, I wish I, I, I took like a few journalism classes like in college, but I, I wish now that I had like, a degree in journalism because <laughs> I feel like it would make this much easier because it's, I felt like a lot when I was making like Andre the giant, I was like making the process up for this as I was going along as well as like writing the book. Um, but I feel like it's gotten easier or not easier, but just like, I'm just more experienced uh, with it. So I know how to, I know what I'm doing, but I, I couldn't really <laughs> teach somebody how to do it or like give somebody a give somebody a like a point bullet point breakdown of how it goes. It's just like you you read a ton of stuff and then like barf it out kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you do well, a really good whatever job. Whatever you're of, doing, whatever you're doing, it's work. So yeah. uh, keep it up, I guess. I think you do a really good job <laughs> of ingesting that information and getting it back out in a clean and like artistic and like interesting way. Cause like a lot of the Tetris books specifically, you told it in sequential pictures and things like that to kind of talk about what yeah, was going on. I'm pretty sure comics are all sequential pictures. Sean. No, I meant like, <laughs> wow, that's not what I meant. <laughs> I know. Like he used like actual arrows and grids and stuff. So you made sure you could get through the whole page and stuff in the right order to break down these complicated transcontinental business dealings that were <laughs> happening at the same time. Which I guess also like brings to mind, um, the, does the subject matter inform the style in any way? Because like obviously Tetris has that like color scheme, but like, yeah, maybe the layout or like the the storytelling style, is that yeah. just you doing that or is that you using the information and telling you like which way to go? Um, I think it just kind of comes with the experience of making comics like... Um, I think that I definitely like consider what I'm making in each page. Like, I think that's why I don't, I try to let the, um, content drive like the panel layouts and like the, like the page composition and not like allow myself to just do like, this is going to be all six panel, a six panel grid all the way through this book. (laughs) Um, right. because I feel like that for me, first of all, I think that's cha- more challenging 
and but but also I kind of like prefer to use the page and the and the panel layouts and like the way your eye moves across the page based on the information that's going on that page rather than like any kind of set thing for the book. Um, I think that also that like allows you to keep away from like certain things that I try not to do like where I'm just like sometimes in nonfiction comics it'll the panels will read like um, description at the top, illustration at the bottom, description at the top, illustration at the bottom. Um, and so I try to avoid that, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but there's times when you can't make it like a, a story. You can't turn it into like a 20 page scene because yeah. it's, it's all these technical things. So you have to just like use the composition of page to um, like help and like the, the the language of comics to help like get the information across absolutely it does it, it comes across very well like i i don't know if i would have read a traditional novel about Andrew the giant or andy coffin because i'm not a huge like wrestling guy um but like the, the way that the information is is so digestible and so accessible makes it third like now i would say that i'm a huge fan of the of both of those people <laughs> And I wouldn't have said that before. And there, and, and there's definitely, you, you add such a style and aesthetic to it mm -hmm. that, that draws people in just from that alone. Like, I, I feel like I was drawn into the Andre book, not just as a wrestling fan, but I saw it and went like, oh, wow, that's a really interesting style and a really interesting storytelling method. I'm going to check this out. And I ended up really, really loving that story as a result. So um, I guess we, we kind of, wanted to know how you came to kind of hone in on that aesthetic and that style. Um, it's funny. Like, uh, there's a, I, I had a class when I first started making comics. Uh, I took like, I took an adult continuing ed class at school of visual arts in New York. And Tom Hart was the teacher and, um, he had a special guest, come in named Tim Creeder and he was talking about he's this comic artist he's also written a few novels I think now but he was talking about when he first started drawing like he was so concerned about what was his style going to be and like how was he going to make his like what was going to be his signature style and I think he's like I realized later that like your style is like one of the things you can't you have like no control over almost because it's just like it just ends up being whatever it is. Uh, and, and so it's just you learning to draw all the time. And even now, like I, I still consider it all like a learning process and trying to, to learn how to draw differently and better. Uh, uh, and so like, it just is what it, it just is how it is. And it's just always going to be just this, simulation of all the different things that you've read mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and uh and copied i mean like when i first started making comics i would just like copy stuff i like would try to like do my best to copy a tony millionaire comic strip like just learning the strokes and things like that uh but like it's all just like a synthesis of everything you've ever read and seen 
in your entire life. <laughs> are, are there any specific artists or like other, other people that you would have, that, that you copied or, or learned from yeah, over I mean, the years I that stick that, out? Like, I would say that my, that when I was starting out, I would, I would, uh, I would do, I would uh, try to be, I would not copy Chris Ware, but like was very influenced by his work uh, and how it was like flat like um and just like these geometric shapes kind of and straight lines and i think at some point while i was doing that i realized like i could never make my lines as like perfect as chris ware ever like ever and i was just like that's all right i'll just be like the punk rock version of chris ware <laughs> <laughs> i like it, it has straight lines but it's just also fucked up <laughs> i think that comes across pretty well yeah <laughs> i like that um, but so, but then it's also you know it's a million years of practice. Like I haven't looked at a Chris Ware comic and tried to like copy it or anything like that in, in like a decade. Mm-hmm. But so it's like this. You, it's just like starting off point kind of, and then you do it a billion times, and then it becomes you something you kind of like can't not do. Right, just becomes how you draw and things now. Yeah. I, I like the the not overthinking it method. I was like, that's yeah. that's it. There it is. Yeah. Uh, like it's it. almost like handwriting at that point. It is. I mean, I think that like the best. It's a, and that's a, be- a good example because it's 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 a signature. I mean, it's like it's how you make marks on the page. Everybody's like a little different. Yeah, makes sense to me. I like it. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. That's like I don't think I've ever heard it described that way. That's very. That's all. That's a. It makes perfect sense in my brain. It's like, yeah, of course, that's the way it is. Everyone writes differently. <laughs> Make it sound so easy. Like, yeah, right, I feel like right, everyone exactly. else has this like elaborate, you know, like th- that they thought I mean, through the process like way too people, far, and it, yeah, just it is. Some what people it is. might be like different. Like I know for people like maybe like Jillian Tamaki or something like that, like can can draw in a million different ways in any medium with a million different, you know every technique you could imagine, hmm. you know, maybe it, it's, you do have to sit down and think, all right, what is the best way to draw this particular thing? But for me, it's just like, I only have one way. It's this way. Right. <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean but it's also like ever changing. It, it is ever changing because it's, you're refi- trying to refine it. But, and it's also like almost like, subconscious all, all the time too because i look back at old stuff and i'm like ah oh, no 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 <laughs> i mean in, in preparation for this interview i kind of went back to andre and um and the andy kaufman book and i was kind of like oh yeah i can see now like it's been it's been a couple of years since i read those but i can i can definitely see your your evolution of your style like i you know just thinking back on it, I would have said they all like, oh yeah, these are all like very obviously, you know, that, that style, but then you can really see the, the development and like that you, that you're still developing. Especially with Andre, because I did, I drew Andre like much bigger than I drew any of my other books and used a brush and I didn't use a brush with like any, any other stuff. And I don't use a brush anymore. Hmm. Uh, And I think that was like, 
I never really felt comfortable using a brush. Like I don't, I want to just press too hard to, to really use a brush. Like I don't have like this light touch. Um, but like I read somewhere, I think it was like Brian Lee O'Malley one time was like, learn how to use a brush or a nib immediately. <laughs> I was like, okay, yes, sir. <laughs> and, yes, Mr. O'Malley. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so I was like, oh, I got to be a real cartoonist. I need to use this brush and learn how to just get better and better with the brush. And then at some point I was like, I'm tired of focusing so much on getting the perfect line weight mm-hmm. for all this stuff. Like it's inhibiting the other aspects of cartooning for me. Uh, so I just was like, all right, fuck the brush. <laughs> and, uh, I just use micron pens. Yeah. The micron pens are the perfect medium. Uh, I like them the best. Yeah. <laughs> but I, really I could blow through them all so fast, but nothing like the fresh one. Oh, yeah. A, a brand new, like, number eight micron. Oh, pen. yeah. The best. Such a good feeling. <laughs> I, I had the exact same artistic evolution where I, I was doing, like, a tattoo apprenticeship, and uh, everyone's like, well, you got to paint flash. You got to paint it. Like, you can't, you can't draw flash. You have to paint flash. And so, like, I tried and tried. I just suck. I'm just really bad at painting. <laughs> and then I, I worked for one guy who only used microns and colored pencils. I'm like, that looks great. Like, why isn't everyone doing it that way? Brushes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I always, when I go to the art supply store, I'm like, I want to try, I'm going to buy all this stuff and try it and make comics using, like, everything. All the, I'm going to get a Sumi ink brush and make a whole comic using that. And I'll get a, I'll get, like, these nibs and I'll get, like, this, these, like, whatever a million different pens and all this stuff i never i, I never do it <laughs> like i do it <laughs> for like two minutes and then i just like go back to the thing that i prefer hey man again if it ain't broke uh don't fix it you know yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah if it works it works right yeah, yeah for sure i think that's just the appeal of the art store where every time yeah. i walk in there i want to buy everything oh, yeah. and then yeah. never touch it again they're good at what they do <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's like when we go into the shop and you get us to buy stuff that I, that we never read. You know, that's yeah, exactly. the way it goes. <laughs> I don't want any of these comics in that picture behind me, but Casey made me buy like a lot of them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any any projects like you're working on now, like any irons in the fire that you wanted to talk uh, about yeah, or allowed uh, so to talk about? I have uh, a, the book I'm working on right now is uh I'm working with a writer, so I'm just like the artist. I haven't done a book like this ever, mm. where I'm, I'm illustrating someone else's story, but I'm really enjoying doing it. Um, and I really like the, the writer. It's it's a this guy, Andrew Weiss, who is a Russia expert, and he worked in the Clinton and Bush administrations. Um, and it's about uh, Vladimir Putin. And oh, like, wow, it's nice. interesting stuff and like really like right now it's i've been drawing a lot of stuff about the um revolution in ukraine in 2004 and it's like awesome like <laughs> russia tried to like fix the election and the next day one million people came out in protest, like in the in the town square in kiev uh so it was really really interesting stuff to do um and then also i have a book that i'm working on called uh we drilled he-man into their pea brains <laughs> um, which is about how like i mean it's about he-man 
and That's awesome and um transformers and gi joe and like the toy boom of the 1980s but it's a very critical look at children's media of the time so like i as i was writing it i was like dude the he-man fans are going to be so fucking pissed off (laughs) because it's not it's not a very flattering look at any of it and i think it's something that we all know Mm -hmm. uh, that even though even though we we love he-man and transformers so much but we were also completely and utterly brainwashed by the media companies and toy companies that made them uh and so it's about that and um but that'll come out after the after the putin book even though it's like done basically done i just have to i'm in like an editorial process with it but they want the the putin book to come out first i mean the putin book needs to come out soon because uh (laughs) it's very relevant to everything that's going on um But I, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned that the the He-Man book because uh, Brian from from Brave New Worlds had mentioned it to me in confidence. He's just like, "Yo, Box told me about this like cool this cool thing that he's working on," and I was like, "I was like, oh man, I I can't tell anybody because it's a secret." So I, I'm glad it's no longer a secret, and I can. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the worst. Uh, yeah, I never know what if it's a secret or not. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because. It's like, well, should we wait? Is this the big announcement? Like, because there is at some point an announcement. But like, who the hell knows or cares? Like, yeah. I mean, no one listens to our show. You're fine. Yeah, we're good. But yeah, so that was like really interesting to work on because it was like an examination of my own childhood. Yeah, it feels like that. And that's your, where we talk about He-Man and G.I. Joe on a regular basis as a collective. So and, that sounds and I, really interesting. I think, you know, I, I I might be a little bit more privy to it just working in a comic book store, but I think we're all, like, very painfully aware of, like, the toxic fandom. Like, they, oh, they, you'll yeah. ruin my childhood, and it's like, yeah. it's not yours. It's it's all of ours, but, like, why is there that, yeah. like, and that's like, like they've fairly, been raised by it? It's a fairly, fairly recent phenomenon um, in terms of, like, toys and children's properties because, like, um so like when the lone ranger came out right like the movie (laughs) um there wasn't like a huge swath of kids that grew up in the 50s and 60s watching the lone ranger being like this movie ruined my childhood (laughs) you know what i mean like that just didn't happen Right. Well, that generation was it, their childhood was pretty much pulled away from them at sixteen. Like they're like, you're not allowed to have a childhood anymore. You got to go get a job. Yeah, like, it was. There's a lot of different reasons I think for it. I mean, part of it is definitely the saturation of media. I mean, the book explores this, but it's about the saturation of media. Whereas, like, you know, if you were really into TV shows in the '60s, you got to see it like once a week. At, you know at most and now if you're really in, like my son got into daniel tiger last week he's already seen like 50 episodes like a hundred times each <laughs> right. um, like that just didn't happen in the 60s at all plus, uh, plus the evolution of advertising now they were figuring out what advertising was in the 60s yeah. so mm-hmm. they they really honed it by the 80s and then used it to sure. just really crank up the manipulation well, it's weird they had it 
they had it all figured out in the 60s and 70s, but at some point in the 70s, we made a decision to protect children from it. And when um, Reagan came into office in the 80s, they were just like, no, we're not going to protect children from this anymore. <laughs> just squeeze <laughs> so, them like the commodity that they yeah. <laughs> And so there was like this weird golden age from like 1970 to 1980 where toys were toys and cartoons were cartoons. And it was like a separate thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah did, did I, it ever and now you can't like you can't even think about kids shows without their, a toy associated like everything every show we've been talking about I'm like yeah like that's just what they are now it wasn't even mm-hmm. it just became everything it's or so you toys of, first you don't question it at all yeah exactly yeah it's just like of course there's an entire toy line for every show that yeah. i watch when i'm eight yeah <laughs> of course or a gritty comic book equivalent yeah, right. Grow up. That G, that was GI Joe, right? Well, and all of them, they all, all have. Oh, they yeah. all. Well, Turtles was the gritty comic book first, and then they were like, "Yeah, that's right." How can we squeeze the that child one, commodity out? Yeah. Of this? Also, one cool thing about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was that Playmates was based uh, in Asia, so it was like the place where they manufactured all the stuff was like also the owner of the company so it wasn't like i don't know they were also exploiting cheap labor but it was like (laughs) cheap labor right wow they were doubling down on it yeah i had a question i don't really know how to phrase it um so i i guess like it's a chicken and the egg kind of a scenario like which came first was it like because especially in, in that book that you're talking about now and with um with cannabis, there's clearly this level, and I, I'm assuming Putin as well, there's this level of like, you know, the, the social awareness and the like interest in politics and all of that stuff. Like, was it like, hey, man, weed's pretty tight. Uh, I want to learn about where that came from. Or was it like, oh, man, uh, you know, like they're really exploiting you know people of color using weed laws like like was it was it a well was a political aspect or was it like a like a interest well i mean it was a little bit because it really started when i was arrested for weed like when i was a teenager but Mm -hmm. i wouldn't have been arrested for weed if i wasn't interested in weed so i mean (laughs) like makes sense (laughs) but that's when i started like if i ever got arrested when i was a teenager maybe I wouldn't ever have given a shit about the, about weed laws because mm-hmm. it wouldn't have affected me really. Like as a white person, especially, I mean, the last decade, at least it's been like pretty much nobody really, I mean, obviously in New Jersey, they arrest 30,000 people a year, but um, like living in Philadelphia, they've decriminalized, have it decriminalized for a long time. And um, you know, it's different now mm-hmm. uh, a little bit. But uh, seeing seeing the criminal justice system as a teenager and just, like, not understanding it, I, I couldn't understand it. I was like, why is this illegal, Mom? <laughs> you know? I, even after reading it, I'm still trying to understand why. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. understand why. And like everybody does it too. Like that's the thing that I can I can never wrap my head around. It's like mm-hmm. this thing that everyone I know does is completely illegal. Yeah. Or, uh, not so much anymore, but And know. there's no there was never a satisfactory 
answer. I never got a satisfactory answer. It was always just like, because it's bad or like, <laughs> right. whatever. Like, it never, it, it just never ever made sense. So like, and I had pitched this to first second right after the Andre the Giant book. Like I sent them a bunch of, like a list of ideas. And that was one of them. And at some point after, I think when Andy Kaufman came out, my editor was like re-exploring this list. And then she was like, how about we do a weed thing? And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Hell <laughs> <laughs> <Hello>, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm reading that one again. Like, it's, again, the same thing. Like, very, co- it was a very interesting read. And you could tell, like, Casey was saying, like, there's definitely a passion there. And, like, kind of you talking about it. Like, you could tell it's coming from a place of experience almost. And, like, why is this a thing? And kind of, I, I found that one really interesting. And, and, and frustrating. Also, yeah, and, like, yeah. kind of breaking down what we all kind of knew to be true of just, like, it's predominantly, you know, it's a way to exploit minorities. But the yeah. level of exploitation is just baffling and yes i think i think at some i think i had this idea that like oh they just like didn't they thought weed was bad and then they didn't realize that it wasn't when the science wasn't there to teach them that it wasn't bad and so but now there's all these laws in the book so they couldn't change it but it wasn't like that at all it's like they always knew it wasn't bad <laughs> and they made the laws specifically to mess with indigenous populations and black people and minorities. And it was just always exactly that it, as ever is thus. Like it was like the simplest explanation really. Yeah. And they just made stuff up to fit that narrative. That didn't matter. Yeah. yeah. And then you still hear the stuff, like, because I remember, like, growing up, like, you hear the same stuff. It's like, well, if you smoke weed, you're definitely going to do heroin. Like, there's I mean, just there's no still... contest. What's wild is that, um, so I have a crazy story about it. So I was doing, when the book, the cannabis book came out, I, I, New York, as part of the promotion, New York Times wanted me to do a comic for their book review, where they were doing comics on the back page of the book review. And... It was a mine was about a, a cannabis book that came out in the seventies, that was like this official study that was like thrown under the rug by Nixon, but then the guy like released it as a book, so the information still got out there, and <laughs> they made me edit the comic to make it seem like weed wasn't quite as safe as it really is, <laughs> and. I pushed back on it. I was like, I'm not editing that out in that way. Like, that's just like one, not true. And two, like it's the too soft language. And the guy who I was working with told me that the editor who recently was fired, nice. uh, uh, was a cannabis like denialist and he cited or a cannabis skeptic, he said, and he cited this guy, uh, Alex Berenson, who wrote a book that was just like all this same old reefer madness bullshit, but it came out this year instead of 80 years ago. Oh, and so it's super relevant. Got yeah, it. Yeah, it's like <laughs> same nonsense, right? And so they cite this guy because he used to work at the New York, at New York Times. And they're like, well, this guy says like there is some counter evidence here. And like the, I was like, this is just total disingenuous bullshit. Like, and now that guy, Alex Berenson, 
was in the news a bunch of times in the last few weeks as a COVID denialist. Oh, I was wondering why that yeah. name sounded familiar. That, uh, yeah, makes sense. I was, I was just about to say, I remember that issue of the book review because I, I used to have a subscription to the Sunday New York Times until uh, just recently, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but I was uh, like, ah, I don't think I want this anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was just dumbfounded by that. I was like, I got to go pop look at this immediately. <laughs> right, right. I, I, it's never a good... Uh, sign when the people that you're working with want you to do what Nixon did. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Throw out the report. Like, this is ridiculous. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is like the antithesis of the whole point of this comic. Yeah. And and the book you're trying to, to promote. <laughs> I couldn't believe it too. I mean, like, it just seems so, I was like, how old is this guy? A thousand? <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with age, really. It's right. just about like, Blues-mindedness. Yeah, it's just that mentality. You just kind of, you get that, whatever. And, and, and racism. Racism, yeah. apparently. And that's part I of guess it. that's part of it, too. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm also going to say that COVID deniers, there's a big Venn diagram of COVID deniers and racists, and it's almost a perfect circle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite wrestling match? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot. So many. Um... <laughs> One I always return to is uh, Macho Man versus Ultimate Warrior from WrestleMania 7. Oh, it that's was, a good one. It was like a reti- retirement match. And yeah. they like did their finish. They each did their finisher on each other five times, which was like never happened back then, ever. Like you never did the finisher more than once. And then yeah. Ultimate Warrior kicked out of five elbows in a row. Um and then uh, Miss Elizabeth came back at the end also. And it's just like this brilliant, I, I recommend anybody watch it. It's kind of like an overt ham-fisted uh, pro wrestling match, but it's like really good dramatic pro wrestling match. That's a good one. All right then. So uh, that's everything we had. Did anyone have anything else? No. Uh, answer all your questions and thank you again for coming to talk to us uh, yeah, so, I, i'm glad we were able to do something instead of having a in-store signing you know yeah thank god <laughs> <laughs> so uh where can we find you on social media so i'm box brown on twitter and box brown on instagram all right okay perfect well uh that was brian box brown uh we are tales from the short box um you can find us on twitter and instagram and everywhere else at last week's comics Check us out on DuelingGenre.com. Support us on our Patreon, DuelingGenre.com slash support. And um, stay safe out there, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.